Well, this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the first text that was read this morning, Genesis chapter 19. And I just uh, give a, a word at the beginning here that this sermon is kind of like an appendix to a book. You know, a book will have some chapters and there'll be some additional things that are at the end that maybe the author wanted to include but maybe felt like they were kind of a distraction to the main part of the book. That's kind of what this message is here this morning. I'm, I'm coming back to a topic, and I did kind of either promise or warn uh, you that I would do this uh, back a few weeks ago. I said after Easter we'd return to the issue of homosexuality in Genesis 19. And uh, that's what we're doing here this morning, and it's kind of a, a sensitive topic, and I understand that, particularly in our day. And it's an important topic for us to be familiar with as believers. Uh, we are to engage the world with truth and also grace. So we need to have our hearts prepared to give reason of the hope that lies within us. And so I want us to think about that in those terms. Uh, I know that perhaps for most of us here, I really don't have to convince you that we do live in a world where there is a lot of relational confusion. And as I've gotten to know this congregation over the years, I have also come to realize that there are people in this congregation who have extended family, who have, have gender identity issues, maybe even pursuing same-sex relationships. So this is a very sensitive issue, and I know that it can concern us politically. We can get really excited about some of these things politically, but we have to realize that there is personal hurt that's involved with issues like this. And so we have to be very careful about the polarization on topics like this. It's very easy for us to become proud on the one hand and also to become fearful on the other. We either may talk too much about it or we may not talk enough about it. We might repel people if we're not careful that we can really help or we can, we can cover up sin thinking that we're helping and and actually do them more harm than good. We can overstate the issue, we can understate the issue. So there's possible problems on either side. But for there to be genuine help for people who may struggle in this particular sin, we not only have to have truth, but we also have to have grace for people. We have to give both. And this is true for all people who sin. We have to have grace and truth, and truth and grace. And it's not just those who we would might categorize as having socially unacceptable sins. We have to be careful that we're not glossing over top of the kinds of sins that beset all of us to make an emphasis of another sin as well. It's very possible that some of us may also struggle with other kinds of sins, in fact, if we are a sinner, we will. There are some of us who struggle with perhaps, uh, there are, excuse me, maybe not struggle per se, but just there are, I think in our thinking, we have to realize that there are other sins. Let's put it this way. I mean, there is, there is a sin of gluttony. There is a sin of a wrongful divorce. There is a sin of greed. There is a sin of gossip. There is a sin of judgmentalism. 
And we need to own up to our own personal failings wherever they occur, and we need to have a humility of heart that recognizes that we have sin that the cross, thankfully, will cover. And we need to take our respectable sins at times more seriously as well. Because sin is serious. It separates us from God. Sin is so serious that God sent his only son, his only begotten son into the world to pay for our sin. It's that serious. And so, whenever we choose sin, or we embrace a particular sin tendency that we may be afflicted with as a human being, what we're doing is we embrace it, we're choosing it, and we're not, if we're not repenting of it, we're keeping ourselves away from the joy and the happiness that God would otherwise want for us. And even on a larger degree, we may even keep ourselves out of heaven. So sin is very serious. Something else we need to think through carefully as we go into this topic here this morning is if we're not careful, we at times may overstate why people choose to pursue a same-sex relationship. In fact, some people who do choose this aren't thinking immediately that they're rebelling against God. God may not actually be in their thinking at all. And we have to be careful because sometimes this kind of issue develops out of a personal hurt and pain. And many people choose alternative forms of relationships out of emotional reasons, and gradually, over time, the emotions evolve into more physical activity, and then an identity sprouts. It would be very hopeless of us if we weren't careful to think that the power of the gospel was somehow only for people who were basically good or people who were kind of more emotionally whole. If we start categorizing people with whom the gospel might have an influence upon, we may devalue the power of the gospel completely. So the good news of the gospel is that it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And so, belief. Belief in what? Belief in the Word of God, that it is powerful and able to save us. The chief expression of the Word of God was Christ incarnate, becoming a substitute for us on the cross. Do we believe that? Is that an authority that's great and weighty in our heart? Do we believe that? See, the life of Abraham taught us that God's Word is an adequate foundation It's an adequate foundation for our faith, and if we plant ourselves on it, we will be blessed, and then we will be a blessing to other people. And so it's the same way. Whenever we submit to what God's will is for us, no matter how painful that submission is, God promises to bring blessing eventually. And so this morning, a if you will, a big idea of this message is that a submission to God's Word is the only real hope for human happiness. And it's important for us to understand the centrality of the Word has in forming our personal happiness. And so this morning, I've got basic two points as we think about this topic. 
I have two points. The first is the root of all immorality, and then the hope for all immorality. I'm deliberately categorizing here this morning homosexual behavior with heterosexual immoral behavior. Why am I doing that? Because most Christians around the globe for the last 19 and a half centuries have considered homosexual behavior, no matter the level of commitment that it may create, as being a form of sexual immorality. And this is the word, actually, sexual immorality, was the word that Jesus used when he talked about wrongful divorce. In Matthew 19, verses 8 through 9, Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Not getting, not getting this morning into all the details of that, but you see in that text there, that word sexual immorality is the word porneia, which may sound very familiar to English words in our vocabulary. But it's designating any sexual act that is outside of the context of a covenant relationship in marriage is this kind of sin. Sexual morality, if there's an immorality, there's a morality, and it's only found in a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life. Sexual immorality is a deviation from this pattern that has been established in Genesis 1 and 2. And while that's objective, that is the objective reality of it, we have to think carefully about the root that's underneath of the surface. The surface is really the outward expression. I mean, there are all kinds of sins that we see manifested around us. They're all expressions of sin, and there is a root that goes down below the surface. What is that root? And so, I want us to think here about that root in three ways. And the first way that this root manifests itself is through the devaluation of God's authority and God's Word. And this is where Genesis 19, 7 through, you know, verses 1 through 11 come into play. And you're not going to find a more infamous story in all of the Scriptures. I mean, there's one in Judges. Maybe you go search for it, but this is pretty infamous. And the Lord rained upon this city sulfur and fire and destroyed this city because of their brazen wickedness. It's horrifying. I mean, there's two strangers who are entering into the city at night, and Lot pulls them into his house, and young and old come around the, the house, and thankfully God steps in and prevents the unthinkable from happening. Now, there are ways of looking at this that our modern society has looked at this and tried to revise what's happening here and give an alternate explanation for why God caused judgment to fall upon the city. There are some people who would say, well, this was just a gross injustice. 
I mean, it was kind of a gang formation around the door. And so God is actually not condemning consensual relationships. This is, this, is, this is just totally unjust all the way around. But I think it's important for us to understand that that's a viewpoint that has only creeped in in the last 50 years. That for centuries, Sodom and Gomorrah has become a byword for homosexuality, whether consensual or not. And really, that's a red herring. Just as an example, the city of Pompeii, I know of some people who have gone there on uh, tours to see the ruins of Pompeii, in which in 79 AD there was a volcanic eruption that destroyed the city. But there is evidence that in the city of Pompeii there was a very thriving homosexual subcommunity living in the city. And there were inscriptions that were found on the wall that were on, if you will, the level of a dirty gas station. You've been into gas stations where they've got all this graffiti on the stalls. It's just nasty. But in the midst of all of that, someone came in and over top of it inscribed the words Sodom and Gomorrah in the first century. It was apparently written by a Jew or an early Christian in the first century who equated the events that occurred and depicted there with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a red herring. The city has always been known for this, consensual or not. And the basic problem today is actually the problem that's recorded in the dialogue, and that's the point of reading that text. I wanted us to see what Lot says to the people who are at his door. He says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Do not act so wickedly. And then did you catch the response to what was said back? The crowd says, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. So the basic problem here is a collision of competing authorities. Who's to say? Who's really in charge? Who's to say what is right and what is wrong? To what do we appeal to for a verdict? And really what's at stake in all of these matters back in the day that Genesis 19 was written and also our day today is that at stake is the authority of God's Word. There's two authorities that collide. So there has to be either the rejection of one or the revision of the other. Luke Timothy Jackson is a well-respected, from a technical side, New Testament scholar who actually, sadly enough, supports same-sex behavior. He says this. This is from these words. I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others who have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. See, the pathway 
that leads to the affirmation is a journey which leaves behind the very clear words of Scripture, the inerrant Word of God, and and, and elevates the importance of an individual authority, their own personal experience. Well, it's like a It can be like a conversion story in which a person transitions and they find everything that they hoped and thought they wanted. And it's good. And so that expression of personal weight and authority becomes trumped above what God has said. But the root goes even deeper here. Not only is there a devaluation of the authority of God's Word, this necessarily means that there is an elevation of another authority. And I just alluded to it. It's the elevation of self. And that's where the Scripture reading in Ezekiel is particularly important this morning. I would encourage you sometime to read the chapter of Ezekiel 16. It is a tremendously gracious chapter in which God redeemed Israel that was despised and drew them into relationship with him. But there are, I think it's important for us to realize that in the evaluate, elevation excuse me, of self, there's a lot happening here. Maybe it's conscientiously, but maybe mostly it's subconsciously. You know, there are people who can find a comfort in this kind of a lifestyle because It's a relief from pain that they experience. We have to have a sympathy for people. We have to understand that some, and maybe not all, have chosen to pursue this for emotional reasons. Maybe they've had a difficult upbringing that's created a deep hunger for affection from a parent that they've not been able to get, and there's a real hunger there for that. That might be one And through counseling stories and case studies that I have read, I have read those examples. Some people do out of revenge because they they didn't get it, and then so they revenge against a parent, and sometimes the opposite is true. For some, it can be like a narcotic just to kill the pain because maybe they've been hurt by the opposite gender. It's not always immediately the pursuit of pleasure, but sometimes it becomes that over time as the answer to pain that they're experiencing. And for some, the body becomes an idol. It becomes something that's so needed. And that's true of all immorality, not just this kind that we're talking about this morning. That's true of all kinds of immorality. It can become an idol, a pursuit for something that's like Aphrodite, It becomes a goddess, a great desire. Sometimes it comes about with the ambivalence to their own makeup. There are some people who are uncomfortable in their own skin. They're not so sure about their own um, gender, and they're feeling very inadequate. And, you know, maybe that they don't have a problem with other the opposite sex, but it's that they are so uncomfortable and uncertain about their own, and they're just not sure... But regardless of where it's coming from, the emotional need may be real, but there is an elevation of self that occurs in the process, and the decision-making gets skewed by what I need and what I desire. 
And that's true of all kinds of sin. Now, in Ezekiel 16, where we are this morning, it's an analogy. Jerusalem is being compared to Sodom. And God is saying to Jerusalem as a rebuke that sins that Sodom committed were like, they they were an offense to God on level that Jerusalem's sins were so great that it made Sodom look small. But notice what he says here as point of comparison in Ezekiel 16. It says in verse 49 and 50, and I think it will be on the wall for you if it's not open in your lap this morning. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, and she and her daughters had pride. See that word? Had pride. There's the elevation of self there. And if you drop down to verse 50, at the end of that quotation, they were haughty and did more abominable before me. And the root here is pride. Pride is the boasting in. It's the elevating. It's the aggrandizing of self. It's the projection of what you want and what you think you need more than what God has said will supply for your need. But you know, pride is the root of all other sins, isn't it? Pride is the root of all other sins. You know, we have bought into a lie as society that homosexuality is like in a class by itself. It's not in a class by itself. Its root is the same as all other sin. It's pride. And so we have to be very careful that we're not upgrading wrongfully this sin to some sort of unalterable, something that is permanent and therefore can't be changed. Take away the pride and humble oneself to the truths of the gospel and change can happen. So a third thing that I think is important for us to see here in examining the root is that in our day, what we can do have happen is we can have a minimization of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ if we're not careful. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Jim read pieces of this in the Scripture reading this morning. The Corinthian believers were very immature. They didn't know how to apply the gospel to their life. And to complicate matters in Corinth, there were false teachers who were running around creating alternate gospels. And they were advocating a false view of freedom based upon a wrong view of grace. Some people were saying, if you look at verse 12, all things were lawful for me. See, some people were saying that because I'm in Christ, I can do whatever I want. They also were saying In verse uh, 13, um, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. They were saying, really, your stomach has passions, your body has passions, it's all a part of nature. Don't worry about it. Just do what you think is best and God will be pleased. And furthermore, God's going to destroy this body, so really in the end, the soul is all that matters. That's what he said here in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And Paul comes in and says, no, 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 no. 
The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. These are very old concepts, but aren't they familiar too? They're very familiar. They may not be verbalized, but they're often practiced by people. There are some who believe that, that homosexuality or heterosexual immorality can still have God's grace and you can still participate these ongoing throughout your lifetime, that it really doesn't matter. In other words, there are some people who believe that we can make choices that we want and then also ignore what God has said. And they may say, well, you know, no one's perfect. I mean, we all still fall short of the glory of God. God's grace is unconditional, and the church is for broken people. And while that's true, I mean, amen, the church is for broken people. And the truth is that we all need to be forgiven. But the church is full of sinners, sinners who are repentant, who are repenting over their life. So we need to make sure that our church membership equates with the membership of heaven. If we preach a gospel without a call to repentance, we may be, call, we may be preaching a false gospel. And so what Paul is doing here, he's arguing that the body is central to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the dead in his body. Those who identify with Jesus Christ will have their bodies resurrected as well. And right now, the Holy Spirit dwells within your body. So, don't take your body into sinful sexual practices. It doesn't go together. And he's saying here that grace is not cheap. We're not our own. There's a new authority here. The authority is not self and what we think is best. The authority is what God has said. That is the supreme authority. And this is the root. And most of our time this morning has been focused on the root. But I think it's important for us to see it, but also to realize that there is a hope for this root, regardless of the shape the root takes. The only hope for immorality, any kind, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jim read in the Scripture reading, verses 9 through 11. And in this text, there is a list of different kinds of sin but notice what Paul says in verse 11. He says, And such were some of you, but you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is a new identity when the world says, Oh, you'll never change. There is a new reality. There is a power of the gospel that is past tense, present, and future. Just because someone has had a history of struggle in one particular area doesn't mean that they have to be characterized that by that for the rest of their life. They can be given a new identity in Jesus Christ. And the power of the gospel is not only for those who are basically good. In fact, I would argue that those who think they're basically good are outside of the gospel. And see, those who believe have become new creatures. They need to take ownership of their new identity. 
They have to turn away from trusting in their own feelings. And this happens with every change that occurs in a heart. You have to stop trusting that that expression of sin is something that will bring me happiness. No, God's will will bring me happiness. But it takes time, I believe. Um, There was a time when I was fresh out of college, and I embraced a new job, a new, it became actually an identity. I started working automotive, and I started working in a factory, and I was Mr. Toyota in my family. Like, I was selling Toyotas to people. We only bought Toyotas, and I made the mistake of buying a Honda. I'm all back in the family now. It's all good. But that became an identity, and it took a while to to get used to it. But when I left that and I became a pastor, there was a shift, right? And all of a sudden, I have a new role, a new identity, and I might not feel completely comfortable in that setting yet, but over time, it becomes who I am. And this is true of all of us who have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. The filth of sin is washed away. We're set apart. We're declared to be a child of God. And so, because we no longer have to be this way, we can become like Him. We're free. And it takes a while to understand this and embrace it in our hearts. But the power for change is there. And so by application, I believe as a church family, we are a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching congregation. We ought to be making room in our pews for people who are searching, no matter what kind of sin background they're coming from. There are people who are searching and they are hurting, and we have the opportunity to be the hope, the real hope for them. We need to offer them truth and we offer grace. But we also need to recognize that even within Christianity, those who are born again, there there are some people who may still wrestle with thoughts that they can't quite explain. And just because a person is wrestling with thoughts doesn't mean that they're sinning. There is a really important concept to get there that there is a sin problem at root. And there's a needing to suppress the desires. This is not just a homosexual problem. This is a human problem that we all face. We tend to listen to ourselves rather than listen to what God has said. And that applies to every one of us, not just those who struggle with the same-sex attraction. Our hearts are always crying out for happiness in all of the wrong places. Why would I not obey God's word? There's a real darkness that occurs in the heart if we're not willing to obey the one who has saved us from a lifetime of hell, an eternity of hell. There is a darkness there. Why wouldn't I want to obey what he has said? The one who has promised me all of eternity and happiness. What is this stubbornness that's occurring in my heart? 
See, we won't find real happiness apart from a submission to the authority of God's Word. And God's designed the world to work that way. Sin promises happiness that it can't fulfill and gives us cheap alternatives that will not last. See, the gospel is God's final word to us. I mean, we have the canon of Scripture. But Jesus, the word of God in flesh, came to us to give us eternal life in the future and right now. And so it's the submission to God's word that is the only hope for human happiness. Do we believe that? It comes down to faith. Do we believe that God's word is a sufficient authority, as Drew had said? Do we believe that the word of God is enough? The power of the gospel is found in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all sins. Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest.